Welcome to Context Matters. I am Cindy Parker. Today we start the first in the series of interviews that follow the Christian story as it developed in a Jewish context and then spread into a Gentile context before severing itself from its original roots. This episode begins with the Jewishness of the gospel and what happens socially to separate the original Jewish Christians from other Jews. I am so pleased to have Dr. Stephen Notley with us today. Dr. Notley is the Distinguished Professor of New Testament and Christian Origins at Nyack College. He is also the Academic Director of the El Araj Excavation Project in Israel. I wanted to talk with Dr. Notley because he studied with David Flusser, and we're going to be talking more about him later. But he also partnered with Anson Rainey on his masterpiece called The Sacred Bridge. He compiled and translated rabbinic parables with Zev Safrai. And these are powerhouse scholars, better known in Europe and Israel than in North America, but you really should get to know who they are. As I mentioned, Dr. Notley is the academic supervisor for El Araj, which he calls the last lost city of the Gospels. Now, if you follow any of the recent archaeological happenings in Israel, you will recognize the argument the El Araj project is involved in regarding the identification of the remains of Bethsaida. But none of these accomplishments took place along a straight line. Twists and turns brought Dr. Notley into contact with people who shaped his perspective on the Gospels. As I like to do, I started by asking Dr. Notley to tell me about where he grew up and why he ended up studying the Bible professionally. I grew up in the Midwest, at least we call it Midwest. Not everybody refers to Oklahoma as the Midwest, but... uh, I grew up in Oklahoma. My parents were both educators, school teachers, and so teaching is in my blood. And I grew up in a in a Christian home. Uh, I grew up Southern Baptist, um, and was uh, you know had a very strong interest in in religious matters and interested in studying the Bible. And I did my undergraduate at Oral Roberts University, mm-hmm. and I uh, my undergraduate was in Greek New Testament, and then I did a an MA there in biblical literature, and was interested, but didn't really know where I wanted to go after that. And I had a friend that I'd grown up with who was in living in Jerusalem, named uh, named Brad Young. And Brad had gone over and was studying with David Flusser at, at Hebrew University. Yeah. And one of my advisors from school, one of my professors at ORU, asked me if I'd ever given any thought to studying in Israel, which I really had not. I sort of followed it up, corresponded with Brad, and flew over in January of 1983 and spent a month in Jerusalem attending some of Flusser's classes, sort of trying to get a sense as to whether that might be something I'd be interested to pursue. And I always tell people that the thing that really cinched it for me was sitting in a class with Flusser, and he was explaining, we, we would meet in his house around his dining table. He was talking about some passage from the Gospels and explaining it, 
And one of the students in the class stopped him and said, I was in this class a few years ago, and that was quite common. People would repeat it year after year after year, that you explained the passage this way, and now you're, now you're saying it in a completely different understanding. Luther looked at the student and said, well, I hope a man my age is still permitted to learn. Oh, nice. And each day I'm trying to come closer and closer to the truth. Now, Flusser at that time was probably approaching 70. And I thought, this is a person I can study with, a person who's still a learner and still gaining new knowledge, changing, changing their ideas on the basis of, of a fresh understanding. Yeah. And if you've studied with people who are advanced in their careers, you, you know how rare that is. A lot of times what, what you get them doing is just repeating the same thing they've been saying for the last 40 years. And to find somebody who's engaging the material in a fresh, innovative way is, is very, very rare. So I came back and, and uh, my wife and our, at that time, two children, uh, we packed everything up and moved to Israel. And I began my studies at Hebrew University in the autumn of 1983. And so what was it like? You're like you're, you're an Oklahoma family. I mean, the landscape of Oklahoma is vastly different than Jerusalem. It completely different. I had a hope that if I immersed myself in the language, the culture, and the physical setting of the Gospels, that I would be able to read them from the inside out. Mm. I'd be able to understand them in a way I couldn't grasp if I studied outside of the country. Right. And so, for me, it was a shock. I mean, I, I knew I'd studied some biblical Hebrew, but that's very different than modern Hebrew. I mean, there are similarities, but it's a different part of the brain. And I came over and immediately immersed myself in modern Hebrew. I probably made a huge mistake because I only gave myself six months to get my modern Hebrew to the point that I could study at the graduate at a graduate <laughs> level in the university. So, you are bold. <laughs> by the by, the time I I actually tested out and was able to enter the university, but what I could pass in a in a written exam and what I could actually function at are two completely different things. Mm -hmm. And so, it was the first year of university was mostly a language lab for me. It was mostly trying to still get a handle on the language and not so much the content. I mean, everything was foreign. And of course, one of the first courses I had to take was Babylonian Talmud. And so you're it's not just Aramaic, <laughs> but, it's, but it's Talmudic Aramaic, and it's incredibly complicated. And you were supposed to be able to study your first year and take your exams in your mother tongue. But my teacher did not know English. So I actually wrote my exams in Hebrew, which is, I look back on it, you know, it's, I, I don't know, I think I made it some type of a B and I was so proud of sure. making a B and not failing the class. It was yeah. just, uh, very, very difficult. But again, it was sort of a, I guess, a baptism of fire. I have no regrets. 
it was transformative in terms of how I read the scripture, how I understand them, trying to enter into the mindset of those who are writing and living out the story. Yeah. It makes a huge, huge difference in, in, in our understanding of, of the message of scripture. Yeah. So how do you think doing your highest level of training actually in Israel, how do you think that changed you as opposed to just doing PhD in the States? It meant I'll never fit. So that's the first thing. <laughs> the way that you read the questions that are asked, the information that you process, I generally assume that when I go to a scholarly conference and I stand up to deliver a paper that there's hardly anyone in the room who agrees with my assumptions as I handle, as I enter the text. Little things that are actually momentous, like that Jesus spoke Hebrew. Mm, Um, The majority of New Testament scholars, vast majority, believe, you know, that Jesus only spoke Aramaic, that Hebrew was a dead language. I mean, the New Testament studies is we're still stuck in the 19th century. Wow. Not even the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls has moved people off center really? on this. And, and even if they say he knew Hebrew, it's more like medieval Latin. Um, right. That's not, not that he converses. I mean, I'm working right now on parables. And a couple of years ago, I was asked to deliver a paper in, in the Historical Jesus session on parables. And was sitting at the table with really... I won't mention names, but some of the top New Testament scholars in the world. And they're all sort of, you know, talking about Jesus' Aramaic parables. When I got up to deliver my paper, I said, look, I'm, I think I'm the only one in this hall who has actually translated the, the first 456 Jewish parables, the oldest parables that exist. And I'm here to say that there's not one Aramaic parable, period. Hmm. Hmm. There are no Aramaic parables at all in Jewish tradition, even in the Aramaic portions of the of the Talmud when it comes to telling a parable that will shift to Hebrew. And I said, huh. there absolutely is no basis for suggesting Jesus told his parables in Aramaic. And someone told me later that I sucked the air out of the room because it, <laughs> there's just there's no data there. They just function on everything they've been told moving forward without actually looking. And right. there's, and that's just a small portion of what I deal with on a regular basis, you know, whether it's dealing in language, historical geography. Um, one of the things that you learn very quickly in Israel is that if you're going to get up and speak publicly, you're actually speaking to an audience that is has firsthand familiarity with issues of culture, right. physical settings. Yep. And so... Ideas that would be bannered around outside of the country, there have zero shelf life. They just they disappear quickly because they're they're not tenable. You're engaging the context of scripture, whether we're talking about culture or physical settings or language settings, all of those things come into play and and serve to filter what you're understanding. They put limits on what you can say about any particular passage. Yep. It's a completely different way of functioning. And the, I think the challenge for me 
you know, because I've been almost 20 years now outside of the country, is how to communicate that in clear ways that people can understand. Occasionally, I'll have someone say, how can you be so certain when you speak about geographical matters? Because I've been there countless times, (laughs) and I know know exactly the contours of the land. And they're just, and these are people I'm talking to. These are people I'm talking to who have never, I mean, have never been to the country. Yeah. And I'm sure you encounter it as well. It's I, so I, true. I, t- I tell people that, that New Testament studies, I said the best analogy I can give you is imagine a world-class French historian who doesn't know French and has never been to France. Right. And I'm not talking about somebody who likes French pastries. I'm talking about someone who's renowned and recognized. I've had, I've had world-class New Testament scholars of, of the names would be known to everyone who've come up to me and said, you know, it's my life's dream actually to go to Israel someday. Yeah. yeah. And I, I don't understand how that is allowed to happen, but it happens regularly. I so, agree. I tell every student who is a Bible student, much less a seminarian, who's getting ready to go and even teach in churches. I'm like, you can't, you can't do that without going to see the place where all of this text originated. And they think I'm crazy. I think we've, we've become accustomed to the mindset that this is just a story that we can talk about without engaging the reality of the yeah, story. Yeah. You know, it, the stage, the setting, and, and it's, it, people, you know, they get comfortable with that. You know, it's just a story. We'll, we'll shape it this way or that way to speak to this life instance or that life instance, which I, I think is important. Scripture does speak to our daily lives, but it's also very much rooted in its original context. Yeah. And there's, there's those two parts of it. It's not only the application and what it has to say to us today, but that is very much connected with its its origins and, and how the first people either heard it or read it and trying to to see those connected. And that that's a challenge for us. Yeah. You mentioned just a little bit ago David Flusser. Can you tell us a little bit more about who he is? Because talk about someone who had a fascinating background and then became a mover and shaker when it comes to studies of who Jesus, the historical Jesus was. At this point, Dr. Notley and I get into a long discussion about how Flusser was born in 1917 in Prague. He grew up in an aristocratic, non-religious family. Well, Jewish family, but not religious. They were a well-traveled family who visited all the different museums in Europe. He grew up with a classical education and knew Greek and Latin by the age of 10 In 1938 or 39, so he was still a young man, Flusser was allowed to go to the British-controlled Palestine to teach Greek at Hebrew University. statement he made was that Greek saved his life because he got him out of the Holocaust, and Jesus saved his Jewish identity. Flusser had the necessary language skills to read everything written by Jews in the Second Temple period— which includes the Greek New Testament. His early reputation, though, was made through his work on the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
But basically, he gathered such a broad understanding of life and thought of the Second Temple period. He ended up being awarded the Israel Prize, uh, which is a little bit like the Nobel Prize for Literature in Israel. His knowledge and curiosity took him to studying the historical figure of Jesus. But Flusser's curiosity stemmed from his work in language, not the theology, even though there were theological consequences. But he always was trying to read the text from the inside out. Oftentimes you find that people, people who understand Second Temple period literature and thought are not interested in looking at the historical Jesus. And people who deal in, this, in historical Jesus don't always understand the contour of, of the thinking of that time. And so ideas that they project on him Right. There's no way that anyone in the Second Temple period will be talking like that or saying the things that they're suggesting. And that's that's one of the things about Flusser is that he was able to cross that bridge yeah. and to connect the two sides in a way that is, I, I think, I, I still find it unique. I, you know, I, there's no way to replace a person like that. I find it remarkable that with the Church's spotty history throughout the Holocaust— There was a brilliant Jewish scholar who found a curiosity studying Jesus, but it wasn't because of the actions of Christians, but because he got to know Jesus in his Jewish world. Dr. Notley and I went on to talk about the cavern that still exists between Second Temple Jewish thought and students of the New Testament. You know, some Christians feel uncomfortable with engaging in in an, an intimate way, in a thorough way, uh, Second Temple period Jewish thought and, and yeah. how that how that should shape our understanding of Jesus. We still come with sort of you know they're like red lines. You can't cross over these. You can't cross over these. And yeah. I would say from the Jewish side, it's the same way. There's been a separation. They're interested, casually interested in the person of Jesus, but there's always been a very clear line. One has to be very careful about stepping over. And one of the things, Flusser is all the time stepping back and forth and really being disruptive on both sides. There still is, rem, remains, I would say, a distance between our two communities. And I, and I understand the history of it. I understand the suspicions there. I understand some of the, you know, prejudices that, that pre-exist. But it's, it's unfortunate. It stops us from really being fruitful in our inquiries and in our study right. of, of Jesus within his own setting. Yeah. So I'd like to push into that a little bit because I think not everyone understands how a distinction grew between Christianity and Judaism. And I've been in classes before, or I've been teaching in Israel before, and I make the statement about all the original Christians were Jews, and people look at me like I'm weird. <laughs> and I think, well, I mean, all of Jesus' disciples, Jesus himself, they were all Jewish. And when we read the story of Pentecost, it's happening in Jerusalem, and everyone is Jewish. What are some of the beginning fissures that we start to see between the Jewish Christians and the other Jews who are around them? I mean, again, I'll quote Flusser, and he, he would say that 95% of the tensions or the dispute between 
the early church and the Jewish community, 95% of that was sociological, 5% theological. Mm. Most Christians think it's the other way. What we have, of course, is in, I mean, you're absolutely right. In the, the earliest, when we look in the Gospels, they're, they're almost all Jewish. Occasionally, we have someone pop up like the, the Gergesene demoniac, who right. probably was a Gentile, wants to follow Jesus, Jesus sends him back. Right. Says, nope, go back to your own village. And so uh, respecting those sort of clear lines of, of the societies and communities at that time, that's the nature of the church. So that when we open the book of Acts and we read, you know, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to... And now how do we translate that? Do we translate it to the uttermost parts of the land? Because as you know, Haaretz can be the land of Israel, but it can also be the earth. So what is conceptually, what are they hearing? Are they hearing Jesus in Acts 1-8 giving the great commission to every man, woman, and child? Are they understanding that the gospel, the proclamation that he came and delivered, would be spread and fill the land? from Dan mm. to Beersheba to use the Old Testament line. And I think that the story continues until we start having these episodes like Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, who's a Roman centurion. We can see Peter's hesitancy in going. And he, he says, look, you know, I'm not supposed to be here. Mm. You know, he can have interactions, but to have home visit puts him in a vulnerable place in terms of dietary laws. So they're very, very clear lines of, of social interaction. But he, he said, clearly God's up to something. In a sense, God does an end run, pours out his Holy Spirit on, on Cornelius and his family. And, you know, there's, I think there's shock, right. to be quite honest. Until that time, people could not, I don't think Jews could really conceive of someone outside of the people of Israel being in a covenantal relationship with God because of the pagan world, that, that idolatry yeah. permeated so much of the world, so many facets of life, really, from, from the time you were born until you died, it touched on every part of your life, offerings to the gods, keeping the gods appeased, you know, your profession, there was a patron god of your profession, everything from beginning to end. And, and sometimes I, I tell my students the analogy, let's say if you were a Jew living in Ephesus or Corinth, you know, and you're there with a Jewish community, you're like in a little boat in a huge sea of idolatry. Right. And your, your community is keeping you dry and protecting you from, from engaging, coming in contact with that. And their mindset, the concept of a god fear, which is what, Cornelius is called. It's a technical term. It's a non-Jew who is withdrawn from certain cardinal sins, certain grievous sins, particularly the area of idolatry, sexual immorality, and bloodshed, murder, that they have refrained from those. And if they will, then they could be, they could come to the synagogue. They could be sort of set on the outskirts of the synagogue and be there during the services and things. But there were some more conservative. They did not see how someone could, if you be, they could be treading water 
out on this sea of idolatry and not and not get wet. That the only way, the only way for them to actually be acceptable to God would be to climb in the boat. And right. that's what we hear in the op- op- opening of Acts 15. Yes. They said, Men came down from Judea saying, unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. Now, that's, that's not a physical act. That is, I mean, it is a physical act, but it's actually signifying coming fully into the boat, becoming Jewish, and taking upon yourself, just as Paul says in Galatians, he says, I tell you, that anyone who is circumcised is obligated to all of the law. And there were those who said, there's no such thing as a God fear. There's a whole. There's actually a rabbinic discussion about this, about whether there can be a, a righteous Gentile or not. Huh. This is a, actually an internal Jewish debate right. as to whether you can have righteous Gentiles who are not have not come into the community, have not converted completely, become yeah. proselytes. And of course, that leads to really what I consider the watershed event. There are two primary watershed events in history for Christians. The first, of course, surrounds the crucifixion and resurrection. Yep. The second one is the decision of the Jerusalem Council in Acts yeah. 15. Yeah. And their decision in Acts 15, 28 and 29, when they make the decision, it seemed good to us in the Holy Spirit not to put upon you any greater burden than these things. And in our text, we actually have four, but in many English versions, it eliminates one. There's three. Eating meat that is strangled does not appear in many Greek manuscripts. I don't think it was part of the original reading, because the three that remain correspond to what we hear in the Jewish literature that describe God-fearers, and that's to refrain from idolatry, sexual immorality, and the blood there is not the eating of blood, but it's uh, an abbreviation for Hebrew, shvichat dam, bloodshed, the spilling of blood, which is murder. And I think what happens is a later Greek scribe, and we're talking 5th, 6th century, something like that, read the blood and sought to clarify it as eating an animal that has not been properly bled. But I think it takes us off point. And it's essentially the, the leadership in Jerusalem saying that now God is embracing and allowing non-Jews to come into the fellowship, become part of the body of Christ, without undergoing conversion to Judaism. That is say. such a massive decision that we just don't talk about. Well. I historically, I mean, until I went to Israel and was around people talking about it, no one really discussed with me how massively significant that decision was by the Jerusalem Council. Like, what a leap for this decision to be made. Oh, it's it's why I call it a watershed. That's amazing. I'm in New York City, so I have students really from all over the world. And I'm sitting there and I said, trust me that the people who wrote the New Testament never had you in mind. When I look at this vast <laughs> diversity, I said, I said, but the decision in Acts 15, 28, and 29, uh, if that decision had not been made, we would not be here today. Yeah. It, it, it dramatically changed the trajectory of the church. And I think that is the beginning. 
and you know you can you can look at a couple of other benchmarks. I think the destruction of Jerusalem was a very important one in the history of the church and the relationship between. Yeah, I was going uh, to ask you about that because that the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem changed Judaism as a yes. whole, and so. And so tangentially, because the Christians were Jewish too, at you know in that area, so it had to change them too. Can you can you talk a little bit about how Judaism changed so much without the temple? In a sense, they they have to deal with the lack of a temple. You become more of a Torah centered. Not that Torah wasn't important before, but now the services change in the synagogue. We don't have any prayer mentioned in the synagogue prior to 70. The synagogue was not a focal point of prayer. Uh, it was a place of study. But after the destruction of the temple, uh, we began to, to read and hear about prayer, communal prayers, liturgical prayers within the synagogue. Judaism sort of regathers itself, and very famous Yochanan ben Zachai helps to sort of and the Council at Yavne, they, they sort of re, refashion, reestablish Judaism, and it's a Torah-centered Judaism that lacks the temple. It looks forward to the day when the temple will be restored, but in the meantime, it, it, it functions without it. It certainly has an effect upon the, the shape and the direction of Judaism, uh, and it likewise, I would say, it has an impact upon the Church, because mm. the Church has this very awkward place within the Roman Empire, is that the, the, the Romans did not look well upon new upstart religions. Hmm. And so, in a sense, Christianity held on to the coattails of Judaism and said, well, we're part of them, we're part of them. We're an ancient faith. But as you get this series of, of revo- rebellions, revolts, that break out, that culminate in the Bar Kokhba revolt, 132 to 134, it's no longer a positive thing to be associated with the Jewish community. Hmm. Uh, It's becoming more and more problematic, and you start having a distancing take take place. And I I think a lot of the things that happen, happen in the middle of the second century. See, I find this interesting because the first time I ever learned about the split between Judaism and Christianity, it was taught as a one decisive moment, like not as a sociological development. And I was originally told that happened at Yavne. So after the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the Jewish council comes together and is restructuring Judaism, that there was a hard line set between them and the Christians. But the more I've studied, the more I've seen the the long and slow divide that you're talking about. And and part of me wonders, and I'm curious your view on this, because the Bar Kokhba revolt, that second revolt, Bar Kokhba was set up as a Messiah-type figure. And so was that just added fuel to the fire in terms of the split between the Jewish Christians and the Jews? Because the Jewish Christians couldn't uphold him as a Messiah. They, because they had already found a Messiah. Right. Yeah. The, the revolt in 66 to 70 was not a messianic revolt. It was a, a liberation. The battle cry was for the redemption of Jerusalem. 
and it didn't center around a messianic individual, unlike the revolt in 132, which was led by a, a messianic figure. And certainly the Jewish community, I mean, the, the Christian community, and when I say Christian now, I'm talking about Jewish believers, would have been unable to have followed another person who was being identified uh, by some, not by all, but by some as the Messiah. Um, and so uh, they didn't support that revolt. So I think that's, again, there's these series of contributing events that happen that slowly, slowly see the separation and the, the parting of the ways between the church and and the Jewish people. Yeah. I, I think the parting of the ways is a much slower process than many people assume. Some people want to push that back to Jesus himself or Paul. I think that's crazy. But I, I think you are starting to see the movement in that direction. It's a different pace at different places. I think up into the 4th, 5th century, you, you still find places where th- that parting isn't complete yet. In other places, you find it more, you know, clear separation. But I think, you know, part of it has to do with, uh, you know, this problem of these Jewish revolts that take place, uprisings that take place over the course of about 60 years. Yeah. Um, and Christianity eventually sort of uh, separates itself. I think it's Eusebius, the church historian, who says that it's about this time of the Bar Kokhba revolt that we have for the first time bishops in Jerusalem who are bishops of the uncircumcised. Mm. Now, up until that time, we have Jewish bishops, but when Rome makes a rule that Jews can no longer come into Jerusalem, then you've got a problem, and we, we shift and start having uh, Gentile bishops, non-Jewish bishops, in Jerusalem. And I, I think that's Again, it contributes to this process of a separation between Christianity and Judaism. You're right. There are people who want to push it back. I think there are, to be honest, I think there are, are parties on both sides in both religious communities who would conveniently like to see this separation happen early and happen you know, clearly. But it, I, I don't think it's the same in all places. I think it's different in different places and happens at a different pace. So, but it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating subject. Sometimes we're in such a hurry to make everything these quick and clean, decisive moments, and, and we forget the reality of these things happening a little bit slower. And to give it space, give, you know, have a little patience with the development of history and the change in human thought to a certain extent. Right. Well, great. Thank you so much for your time. I just really appreciate the fact that you let me call you up during this COVID weirdness and pick your brain. I love this particular type of conversation. So thank you so much for uh, spending time today. Well, I I appreciate you inviting me and I, I hope that out of it, you know, It'd be something worthwhile, worth worth saving. Doesn't end up all on the uh, editor's floor. No, but, uh, it's so great. Anyhow, no, we're we're socially distant, so you're, you know, you're at least two hours from me, so we're fine now in the, in, in all of the <laughs> COVID restrictions. Right. So. <laughs> all right. Okay. Well, thank you very much. 
If you go to the podcast page on my website, you will find all kinds of links for some of Dr. Notley's books, books written by Felucer and some of the other scholars mentioned, and a connection to the website for the El Arage Archaeological Project. So my website is www.narrativeofplace.com. My heartfelt thanks goes to Peter Lordson at Sycamore Sound, and of course to Patreon partners like Lisa and Asuga Abaya. These Patreon partners enable me to create this podcast for you. I am so grateful to all of them. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me at the podcast table. And until next week, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay curious about the world around you. Mm-hmm.